0: Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 281, The Fall of Java, Part 1. Last time, the island of Sumatra, with its vast oil reserves, fell to the Japanese. As had happened before, Singapore was relying on the defense of Malaya to stymie the invaders. Then Sumatra was relying on Singapore to do the same. It also went that way with the Philippines, Burma, Borneo, Bali, the Moluccas Islands, and the Celebes. But now that it was Java's turn, there were no major Allied held lands nearby to seek relief, except Australia. But that was having invasion fears of its own. With the fall of southern Sumatra by February 16th, Java knew its turn could come at any day. Yet, again, there was nowhere else to go. As such, civilian evacuees, soldiers, and airmen from Singapore and Sumatra were pouring into Java, congesting the ports and nearby roads of Batavia, modern-day Jakarta, the then capital of the Dutch East Indies, on the northwest corner, and Surabaya, near the northeast corner. And this mass confusion could have been worse had the Allied troops from Singapore and Sumatra come with much of their equipment, but they did not, leaving it behind in their haste to evacuate. Back on January 10th, Lieutenant General Sir Archibald Wavell came to Java from New Delhi and held a conference at Batavia. Abdukaman was formed, but the idea had come from the Washington Conference, a.k.a. the Arcadia Conference between Churchill and FDR, which had started on December 22nd. But very quickly the Dutch were going to find out how they raided with the Americans and British. Only one Dutch officer, Lieutenant General H. Hare Poorten, the commanding officer of the now Abda Army, was brought on board Abda Command. Not so Admiral Conrad Helfrich, the commander-in-chief of the Royal Netherlands Navy. Helfrich was a jaw-jetted scrapper who sought a fight with the Japanese. And as he was born on Java, he knew the area's straits, coves, and shallows. Not the man to leave out. Helfrich only got word of the decisions made by Abdicom via the Dutch naval officer on the staff of Abdafloat. That position, the senior naval commander in the area, went to U.S. Admiral Thomas Hart, commander of the U.S. Asiatic Fleet. As for the top job of air power, that went to RAF Air Marshal Sir Richard Pierce. This mishmash of services thrown together, having only days to organize themselves, was only the beginning of the issues to face this group. Language barriers, personality conflicts, not enough time to work out trust issues, and then, of course, there were the hurt feelings of the Dutch. But, as all the members of ABDA were about to find out... Whereas Rear Admiral Carl Dorman, commander of the Royal Netherlands light cruiser H.N.L.M.S. de Reuter, was a fighter, even to the end, Admiral Hart, respectfully, was a worrier. Before his time was up, and that would be soon, he wrote 3,000 pages in his diary, worrying about the enemy's next move, worrying about what would happen to the men under his command, and equally worrying about what would happen to his career. Caution is one thing, but this was not caution. And it got worse. Hart helped create a labeling and command system that would take months to work out, and they didn't have months. He designated that when the heavy cruiser USS Houston and the other American ships of the U.S. Asiatic Fleet were on convoy duty, they were called Task Force 5 but when they were working with the other navies, they were designated Combined Striking Force. So, in order to use the correct handle, you had to know the larger situation. Then Hart added a few layers to the command under him. Again, not unusual, but there was little time to get acquainted with this, as they were expecting the Japanese at any time. Hart put Admiral William Glassford in command of Task Force 5. But Rear Admiral William R. Purnell was to be the acting Asiatic fleet commander when the American vessels were part of a larger fleet. Then Hart removed himself from Batavia and Surabaya, the two major port cities on either end of Jaffa, and went to be close to Wevo at Lembong in between the two major port cities, thus creating another situation where another call had to be made to get the top Navy guy. When the Japanese did come, Abda Air Command was at Bangdong, to the south of Batavia. Abda Float was in Lambang, and the staff of the Royal Netherland Naval Air Service was quartered in a separate building Then, Abda Air. Ironically, it would be Captain Albert Rooks, the commander of the USS Houston, and we will spend more time on him and his ship, that practically forecasted how the Japanese would take advantage of the Allies' weakness in this upcoming battle. With so few naval resources, comparatively, he said that the Allies' only chance to withstand an attack was by boldness, but heart would be the weak link here, commitment, but no one was fighting to win, only to gain time and unity. And as we have already seen, there would be little of that. As for Admiral Hart, he kept asking Washington, but was never answered, about when more combat ships would come his way. For now, and it seemed for the future, his Asiatic fleet, with the heavy cruiser USS Houston in the lead, and included the light cruiser USS Marblehead, thirteen old destroyers, and the modern light cruiser Boise, was all the Americans could contribute to the Dutch East Indies. More besides, Hart was even left out of the loop when Vice Admiral William F. Halsey and Rear Admiral Frank J. Fletcher launched air attacks on the Marshall and Gilbert Islands and nearby enemy locations on February 1st. Further, the Japanese were not Hart's only adversaries. Field Marshal Wavell had a lukewarm opinion of Hart's ability to command, certainly in combat, and he told Churchill as such. In trying to get ahead of any criticism, Hart would openly call himself an old man. At 64 years, Hart was, if one didn't know him, venerable, even intimidating. But then he would begin to talk, and as he talked, one's estimation of him could fall. In truth, Hart's self-deprecation did not help. In fact, it reminded everyone around him that perhaps he was too old to help lead this fight. But Hart had very real concerns as well. The Dutch did not think and did not hide the fact that an American should not lead the naval assets in defending their homeland in exile. Next, General MacArthur, a good, if not better, politician than soldier, was spreading the word that the loss of the Philippines had been Hart's fault. And then there was Admiral Hellrich, who found ways to use Hart's words against him. And in this, Hart gave Helfrich plenty of ammunition. On February 5th, Hart received a telegram from Admiral Ernest J. King, the Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Fleet, saying, We have an awkward situation. A universal truth is that when a superior says, We, he or she means you. Turns out that Wavell's complaint to Churchill about needing a younger man was passed on from the British Prime Minister to FDR at a time when teamwork was valued most. So King was suggesting to Hart that he step down due to health reasons and let Admiral Helfrich take command. Two days later, the U.S. Asiatic Fleet was no more. Now designated U.S. Naval Forces southwest Pacific, with Admiral Glassford in command. But this force would now only be a part of the combined striking force, under the overall command of Helfrich, who gave tactical control to Rear Admiral Dorman, which is what should have happened on day one. On February 15th, Admiral Thomas Hart was last seen by the people of Java, standing alone on a pier in Batavia, in civilian clothes, waiting for a British-like cruiser to take him east. Yet hindsight would show he was getting out, while the getting was good. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level yahoofinance.com That's yahoofinance.com As for the USS Houston, which had been Admiral Hart's flagship, though she was the most powerful ship of the U.S. Naval Forces Southwest Pacific, she, her crew, and Captain Rooks had spent most of their time either cooling their heels at Darwin or escorting convoys. But this was after the Houston's participation in the Battle of Makassar Strait, when the Japanese were invading Borneo and the Celebes. The Allied naval force did not stop the enemy from its victory that day. Still, the Houston earned a battle scar as the air attack neared its end. With the Allied vessels retreating to the west, the only bomb that hit Houston that day took out its aft gun turret and killed 48 crew members. This loss of one of its three main guns would affect the defense of Java. The Houston paid their respects to their lost comrades, fixed up their vessel as best they could, the rear gun was still out, and then impatiently waited to mix it up again with the enemy. On February 10th, it was ordered back to Darwin for more convoy duty, but after that, it was told, it would be sent to help defend Java. On February 15th, the Houston was leading a convoy of troop ships to Timor, the easternmost of the Lesser Sunda Islands, about 300 miles or 482 kilometers to the northwest of Darwin, Australia. The idea was that Timor had to stay in Allied hands as a connecting point between Australia and Java. Thus, the Houston with the destroyer USS Perry and the Australian escort sloops Warrego and Swan safeguarded the U.S. Army Transport Megs, the freighter SS Muna Loa, the British cargo ship SS Tulagi, and the Transport SS Port Mar, which were carrying several thousand Australian pioneers, that is, infantry specially trained in construction and engineering, and the U.S. 148th Field Artillery Regiment of the Idaho National Guard. At noon on their first day out of Darwin, the Houston spotted a Japanese H-6K Mavis flying boat. Being a slow aircraft, she wisely stayed out of range of Houston's anti-aircraft batteries, but still tried a lucky shot by dropping her only two bombs from 10,000 feet. Both missed. A P 40 Warhawk was sent out from Darwin to chase her away. That afternoon, the men of the Houston heard Tokyo Rose, a series of English speaking radio broadcasters of Japanese propaganda, say, I see the USS Houston is escorting four transports to Timor, and they are going to be in for a big surprise. Now, this wasn't the first time that voice spoke of the Houston. On the day before the Pearl Harbor attack, the Houston was sent to an island of the southern Philippines to pick up Admiral Glassford. A short time later, the ship received the message from Admiral Hart, Japan started hostilities, Govern yourself accordingly. As the Houston, along with the destroyers, the Steward and John D. Edwards were pulling away, they were attacked by Japanese airplanes, but they were just the vanguard. More enemy planes would hit the southern Philippines on December 10th. That evening, Tokyo Rose announced that President Roosevelt's favorite heavy cruiser, the Houston, had been attacked and sunk. The Houston's crew laughed at this, but were unnerved by being singled out. Still, in reaction, they gave themselves a defiant title, the galloping ghost of the Java coast. But, Tokyo Rose was true to her word about the surprise. At 11 a.m. the next day, February 16th, a formation of nine Mavises and 36 Mitsubishi Type 97 bombers came at the convoy, having taken off from the newly acquired Kendari Airfield on the Celebes. Per standing operating procedure, the attackers gathered in their nine-plane V formation and commenced their attack runs. As much as the Japanese needed those transports sunk, first the Houston had to go, as it was the most powerful ship, with the longest range. Hence, she was the main target of the bomber's first dive. But as not all the bombers went after the Houston, Captain Rooks ordered his vessel to circle the transports, to tempt the bombers away. As her anti-aircraft guns were blazing away, in fact, one blast of its 5-inch guns sent a wave of compressed air that sheared the fabric off of a scout biplane about to take off. The Houston also put out smoke to camouflage her charges. The Australian and American troops on the other ships, not used to naval fights, were impressed, but Rooks was just getting started. Keeping up a decent speed, he had the Houston turning so sharply that his lookouts on the foretops, the platform at the head of the foremast, had no ship under them when they looked down, just water. The ship was leaning that much. The Houston was throwing up so much flack to the soldiers it looked like the sky was on fire. Yet Rook's men knew that this was not always the case. In an earlier engagement, when trying to push away another air attack, the men of Houston watched, disbelieving, as many of their shells failed to explode once they were up near the enemy aircraft. The men cursed during the rest of the exchange, not at the Japanese, but at whatever officer had made the decision to allow shells to remain in use after years of storage. But these Japanese airplanes trying to stop the convoy from getting to Timor were not so lucky. When the light cruiser USS Boise hit an uncharted shoal a few weeks back and would have to leave the area for repairs, Houston took her newer shells on board, and now they were using them to rock the aircraft overhead. This contest went on for 45 minutes, as one Japanese plane after another fell from the sky. The remaining bombers retreated to a higher altitude, which decreased their accuracy. Before it was all done, the Houston's eight five-inch guns had fired 930 rounds, two and a half rounds per minute, which took out seven enemy craft. Still, bomb after bomb had fallen close to the Houston. The soldiers watching just knew several times over that she was hit and done for. But as one witness described, from walls of water surely 200 feet high, from clouds and flame-shot smoke, Houston emerged, racing ahead. As the Japanese bombers left, the convoy reorganized itself and continued north. But that night, a radio signal came to say that Timor, their destination, had just been occupied by the enemy. Turning around, the convoy made their way back to Darwin. Yet the Australians cheered the men of the Houston, who had not lost a single man or had taken a direct hit. The only death was an infantryman hit by shrapnel from a near miss on a transport ship. The men of the Houston came topside to receive the adulation. All the infantrymen felt safer with the Houston at the fore. Between February 12th and the 18th, about 12,000 Air Force reinforcements and refugees arrived on Java from Singapore and Sumatra. But again, the military personnel were mostly without their equipment. Air Vice Marshal Sir Paul C. Maltby arrived on West Java with a small staff on February 14th. Right away, he and his got to work setting up his headquarters at Sakubumi, about 40 miles south of Batavia. Taking the battered pilots and planes, he set them up into squadrons and placed one near Batavia, another squadron just to the south of it, and two more to the southeast of Batavia, about 75 miles or 120 kilometers away. Again, much of this was done on the fly, including setting up fighter and bomber group headquarters. He also got to work on the anti air defenses with two radar sets set up near Batavia. By February 18th, with all this running around and gathering up those planes that still worked, despite their age, lack of range, and maneuverability, the Commonwealth air power consisted of four British PBY Catalina flying boats, nine Vildebeests. 1 Albacore, 26 Lockheed-Hudson's, but only 12 were operational, 26 Bristol-Blemons, but only 6 of these were airworthy, 25 Hawker-Hurricanes, and 40 Kitty Hawks. The Dutch were able to contribute 5 bomber squadrons, 3 fighter squadrons, and 2 observational squadrons. Bringing up the rear were the Americans, with 20 heavy bombers and 24 fighters, but... Most of these were inoperable. The spare parts needed were still in the Philippines, now under Japanese control. The Allies knew that they were in the weaker position in terms of quantity and quality, but in truth, they were going to be outnumbered 10 to 1 in air power. With the Dutch fighting for one of their few remaining possessions, and Java looked like it would go the way of all its neighbors. On February 22nd, Abda Command was officially dissolved. Fighter though he was, Churchill agreed with Wavell that the Dutch, with Allied help, should now be in charge. In conjunction with this, there were British reinforcements on the way, but they would now go to Burma and India. As for Air Vice Marshal Maltby, he and his would be staying, but their contribution was only to delay the inevitable for as long as they could. As Churchill wrote to Maltby, every day gained is precious, and I know that you will do everything humanly possible to prolong the battle. Still, there would come a time when Maltby made the call to end British air operations. When that time came, he was to take everything that was left and head to either Ceylon or Australia. When the fight for Singapore had been at its height, The Dutch Commander-in-Chief, Lieutenant General Hein Ter Porten, had sent help in the form of aircraft and warships. His attitude, and he expected his men to take this up, was that it was better to die standing rather than live on our knees. He certainly expected this from Dorman and was not disappointed. But it must be remembered that when the first Dutch East Indies possession fell, the locals abandoned their European masters, which is completely understandable. The question now was, how long would it be before the local forces on Java would do the same? After all, there were 40 Indonesian troops for every one European. Added to this tricky situation, as the Dutch had lost their homeland back in Europe in 1940, Australia and the U.S. had been bringing weapons to Java, So the men defending their island were carrying rifles of different calibers. This may sound insignificant, but in the heat of battle, when parts were needed or when cohesion would make a difference, the issue would show itself. When the Japanese reached the island and no one on the Allied side doubted they would, the Dutch regular army would have, on Java, about 25,000 men of four infantry regiments, each with three battalions. Again, most of these men were from the region, but the Abonese and the Menadonese troops had been loyal to the Dutch for centuries and were expected to fight. But almost negating this, there were few tanks or armored cars on the island, and the U.S. and the British had not delivered more due to their own needs. There was a sizable contingent of home guard troops, and they had rifles and tommy guns, but... There had been little training and practically no live fire practice, hence little was expected of them. The Australians would be donating about 3,000 men of the Australian Imperial Force 7th Division. The AIF 6th Division was considered for the defense of Java as well, but would not be ready until the middle of April, at the earliest. The men of the 7th Division would be led by Lieutenant Colonel Arthur S. Blackburn, Hence, his contingent would be labeled Black Force. The good news was that they had a decent amount of Bren guns, light armored cars, and trucks relative to their number, but they lacked rifles, submachine guns, anti tank rifles, mortars, grenades, and Bren gun carriers. As it was not yet clear what their responsibility would be, Blackburn had them practice defending airfields. The British contingent under Major General Sir Hervey D.W. Sitwell had the only armored unit on Java. That was B Squadron from the 3rd Hussars and their light tanks. Mostly, the British contributed anti-aircraft units, five in all, but two of these did not bring their guns from Singapore. On paper, the British force totaled some 6,000, but only 3,500, were soldiers. The rest, some 2,500, were Indian drivers, clerks, and the like. As for the Americans, they only had some 750 men on Java, and that was one single army unit, the 2nd Artillery Battalion of the 131st American Field Artillery Regiment of the Texas National Guard, led by Lieutenant Colonel Blucher S. Tharp. But in mid-January, a few B-17 bombers managed to escape the Philippines, loaded down with ground personnel, and landed on Java. As the Allies had, relative to the Japanese, so few planes and service ships to defend the waters around Java, it was expected that the enemy would reach shore. The question was, what would happen then? Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So um, on the next episode, I'll thank all the new members and those that have donated and bought mugs and stuff like that. But I wanted to share one quick story with you from one of the books that I'm using. This one is called Ship of Ghosts by James D. Hornfisher. So he's got this uh, short, funny story in there. So as I said in the episode, uh, the USS Houston was spending a lot of time around Darwin, doing convoy duty, taking troops to Java, and things like that. Occasionally, Captain Rooks would let the men off, you know, to go into town and to to relax or whatever. But it turns out that this uh, place, Darwin, was very small. Uh, There wasn't a lot going on. There were about fifteen hundred people there, and it was literally three blocks by two blocks with the single-story buildings with corrugated iron. So. Again, there wasn't a lot going on there, so the men would get off to Houston. They'd go into quote-unquote town looking for ladies, but there were very few Australian girls there because it was mostly guys. It was mostly uh, work being done. Um, Some Americans had shown up from the South Dakota National Guard, and they pretty much drank the place dry, bought up all their beer, and bought up all the food that they could get their hands on um, because they wanted to have a snack on the ship when Captain Rooks picked them up. So um, as this was going on, this had happened a couple of times, the Americans would come in um, with their money, buy up all the beer, buy up all the extra food in stores, um, leaving the people not very much. So the mayor of Darwin complained to Captain Rooks, and so the captain, deciding that he needed the goodwill of these people, uh, the, the Houston went out again. And when they br- came back, they were able to bring to the town fresh fruit, vegetables, canned peaches, hams, fruit, cocktail, and olives. Uh, this was food that was supposed to go to the U.S. troops on Manila, but obviously that was lost uh, to the Japanese. But this last part I'm going to read directly from uh, the Ship of Ghosts books because it's pretty funny. One of the Houston's senior floatplane pilots became a small-town celebrity by procuring some American beer from a supply vessel in the harbor and bringing it ashore. That's the closest I've ever been to becoming the president of Australia, Lieutenant Tommy Payne said. So as we know, the Australians take their beer very seriously, as did the American uh, servicemen. So see, maybe we have a lot more in common than we thought.